Welcome to the Grace Baptist Sermon Podcast. Pastor Andy Oliver is our Bible teacher and expositor. Today's message is from Nehemiah chapter 3, Pulling Together. Just take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 3. It takes, uh, it takes two people to move a sofa, but two people would find it very difficult to move a full grand piano. The greater the project, the more hands necessary to, to bring it to a successful conclusion. We see that in here this morning, how, how many hands make, uh, make the, the job quick and easy as far as the, uh, taking the, the dining room and turning it back into the auditorium with the seating. Nehemiah has a vision, the construction of the walls around Jerusalem. But a single man working for 20 years would find the task far from completed. It take, needs a team. A big team to fulfill that vision. Now, yeah, I did this yesterday. I didn't plan on doing this. It was one of those, I moved something and so I had opportunity. Observe an anthill, an ant colony. A myriad of small insects that make up sometimes a, a huge colony. Colonies are huge, yet each individual ant has a job. Each can, each job contributing to the colony. The colony thrives as long as they all do their, their job. Now the whole, may in some cases be, like I said, as large as an automobile. But it's all accomplished by the coordinated efforts. And you, I moved something, and you just saw this, this chaos going on. And uh, there were all these little white, uh, the grubs and so on there, there. And, uh, and so I went and did something else. I came back about two minutes later, and all the grubs were gone. And a bird hadn't landed there. Uh, they had, uh, uh, the ants in, the, in, their, in their seeming chaos had organized and had taken away all the uh, the future generation and uh, ensconced them someplace. The same is true with people as far as organization is concerned. Great things accomplished through the, the coordinated efforts of, of many. And that's how a culture, that's how an economy, that's how a society works. It has been said that apathy can only be overcome by enthusiasm. And enthusiasm can only be aroused by two things. First... An idea which takes the imagination by storm. And second, a definite, intelligible plan for carrying that ideal into practice. Nehemiah has capitalized on those things. He's got all of his ducks in a row. And uh, he has presented the people with the idea of rebuilding the wall. He's only been there for a few days. And yet, he's analyzed everything. He probably had all this envisioned never having been there, comes and assesses what can be done under the circumstances, takes three days to get it all figured out and, and, and uh, planned, and then he presents the people with the idea of building the wall. Now, the need is obvious. The people have known this all their lives, the folks that are there. But uh, now take, comes forth the effort to, to get the job done. Now, have to have a goal in mind. There's uh, a project, something that we want to have accomplished. In this particular case, the need for the walls around the city of Jerusalem. To remove the reproach, Jerusalem is perceived as a second-class city at best. It exists at the whim of its hostile neighbors. If they wanted to take it out, they could, and do so very easily. The walls will provide protection for the few people that are living there, and at this time there was just a few. By the time we get to the end of Nehemiah, it will be the largest city in Judea but also protecting the worshipers who come for their sacrifices and for the various feasts and so on. They gather together, and yet they are surrounded by hostile enemies, and if the enemy were to attack, they have they have no recourse. There is no protection. 
and understand that from the perception of the people of that time and in that place, Jerusalem's condition was a reflection of, of God. A sorry condition of the temple setting, a great liability to the worshipers, and a greater liability for the priests who were there all the time, many of whom lived in Jerusalem, no protection from thieves and plunderers and so forth. So there's a great need that's there. People are all aware, they're very much aware of it. Nehemiah has that vision. Remember the grief over the circumstances there in the beginning of chapter 1. He seeks help from God. He's praying throughout all of chapter 1. And then he is commissioned in chapter 2 and verse 5 to rebuild the city. In chapter 2, after having looked at things, and we looked at this last time, after uh, having gone through the, uh, doing a reconnaissance mission in the dark at night, probably just moonlight at best, he, uh, he goes out and he examines the thing. He goes out with just a handful of people. He hadn't told anybody what his plan is. And uh, starting in verse 17 of chapter 2, he, he uh, rehearses the need with the people and explains the hand of God on him so that how God has brought the pieces together. It's all right there. We have the, the authority. I've got the papers stamped by the king's signet. I have uh, other paperwork here that tells me that I have access to the resources, to the timber, to the stone. Uh, I have all these things. The, the crown, the government has, uh, has arranged everything, moving the heart of the king. In Proverbs chapter, by the way, pray for our leaders. That doesn't mean you have to like them. It doesn't mean you have to agree with them. As a matter of fact, under those circumstances, they need our prayers more than ever. And the scripture says that we are to pray for them. And understand that the people that God used to write those commands about praying for your leaders, such as the Apostle Paul telling us to do that in uh, in the book of First Timothy, that those who commanded us to that, look at the people who ruled over them. Oh, be grateful we've only got what we've got. And so pray for the people over us. Number one, pray for their protection. Pray for their wisdom and for wisdom and decisions. Pray that God would thwart the work of evildoers and wicked plans and pray that God would humble their hearts and save their souls. Very occasionally in, uh, in world history, there have been godly, faithful, consistent people in positions of leadership. It is notable when it happens, but God does some great and amazing things, even in little places. Do you know that uh, the modern era of missions, of uh, of people in in the West and the United in, in America and in Europe and so on, sending missionaries to poor and impoverished people who have never heard the gospel before, that that originated in one little place in Central Europe, where a leader, the leader of this little tiny country, caught a vision. His name was Zinzendorf, Count Zinzendorf, and he ruled a little place called Moravia. And the Moravian brethren that are still in existence today are the descendants of a mission that he started. And they sent out self-supporting, mind you, self-supporting missions all over the world. And this is in the late, in the 1700s this started. They were the first to do it. One man in a position of leadership had, had a vision. So pray, pray for our leaders. The vision is communicated to the people. Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Instead of grousing and complaining, let's pray. Let's pray that God does something. And so he tells the people, and uh, the idea is, of course, them to, to catch the vision. They see the need. They've been living with it all their lives. And they do. Enthusiasm, we can do it. Let's arise and build, it says there at the end of chapter 2. Now, there is one body in the church, and... 
It's manifested in the local church, but there is one body, which is the church universal, the bride of Christ. In our setting here, we have the Jews who have returned and their descendants, we're looking at about three, maybe four generations at most at this point in time, who have returned to Judea. We're looking at a population of the tens of thousands, possibly, possibly as many as a hundred thousand people altogether, but probably not. And they are scattered around in these little villages, and they are surrounded again by those hostile, hostile neighbors. And the people gathered together, and they began to build. Each group of people, and you go along, it mentions the, uh, the folks from this town did this, and next to them, and next to them, and next to them. And there are 41 different little groups here. Each assigned a section of the wall, some of them big, some of them very small. There's one section that probably was only about uh, maybe 30 feet long, and there was somebody else that built a quarter mile, more than a quarter mile. Just taking it on according to their ability, according to their to what they found as far as the topography and the material and so on that was available to them. And they worked side by side with those that ruled. It wasn't just the uh, uh, the grunts that were doing this. It talks about various people of different positions, and we'll come to that, but different people involved in this. And so we start out in verse 1. It says, uh, then Eliashib, the high priest, at this point, one of the most influential people in the in the land, he arose up with his brethren, the priests, and they builded the sheep gate. That would be the one closest to the temple where they brought in the sheep for sacrifice. This would be on the, uh, the eastern side of the city. Now understand, I use the word city loosely because what you have is a bunch of little cottages here and the temple. And when you think of the temple, don't think of this, this uh, great uh, gold-gilded building that we looked at when we looked at the life of Solomon. Uh, we're looking at something that was, it's, it's made of cut stone and it's made of timber and so on, but it does not have the, the glamour and the awe that the, uh, the pre- previous building had. And so you have this, this fairly rough temple that is there. You have uh, a bunch of small houses that's there, and that's it. You don't have thousands of people living in Jerusalem. You probably have a couple of hundred people living there in Jerusalem. And yet the people gathered together, the Jews have gathered together from their various cities and so on, and they come. It mentions the priests there in verse 1 and in verse 22. It mentions the Levites in verse 17. That would be uh, another group of people that are related to the priests. The priests, all priests in ancient Israel were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. Okay, you get that? The Levites, of course, are the descendants of Levi. Aaron was a descendant of Levi, and it's his descendants that are the priests. And so the Levites in verse 17 did their, their job. We have a list of a number of tradesmen that were there, probably fairly affluent men. It mentions goldsmiths several times the per, in verse 8, the perfume makers in verse 8 as well, uh, merchants in verse 31, and uh, various people who, who normally are they were doing delicate work. And, uh, oh, I, I can't be involved in this heavy construction project. I might, I might injure my... My fingers. I'm, I'm a craftsman. I'm an artist. And, and these are the tools of my trade. I have to be careful of these, these fingers. And yet these, uh, these men were willing to get in there with everybody else and, uh, and do the hard work of removing, moving stone and chiseling stone and putting timber in place and so forth. It says the rulers were involved as well. They didn't just tell other people what to do and sit back and watch. They were involved. They were doing the, the work side by side with those they ruled. They were willing to get their, their hands dirty. And as you go down the, the list of here, we're not going to be reading the whole text, but you go down the list here, and you have a bunch of different cities that were scattered around Judea where people came from those cities 
to build. They left their homes and they came to Jerusalem. Now understand, for us to travel uh, 10 miles, 6 miles, 15 miles is no big deal. We just get in the car and we go there and we're there in, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes. And so to travel took some time and it took some effort and there was some measure of, of discomfort in this as well. Jericho, there was a team that came from Jericho. That is 17 miles and it's all uphill to go from Jericho to Jerusalem. They came from Tekoa, which was 10 miles to the south. They came from Gibeon, which is 6 miles to the north. They came from Mizpah, which is 7 miles to the north. They came from Zanoa, which is 15 miles to the west. They came from Beth Hakarim, which is to the southwest. They came from Beth Zur, which is 15 miles south. They came from Zela, which is to the north. And few, if any of these people, had anything to gain from this. Materially, it was not something that was going to benefit for them. This was this is a place of worship. And they had seen this thing over and over and over again, that the temple was there, there were the few houses that were there, and yet the city did not have walls. The villages that they lived in had walls. Jerusalem did not. And they saw the need and were willing to sacrifice and go. In verse 12, there was a, there was a bunch of women. They're doing the same work as the guys. They're, uh, they're cutting and hauling stone. They're moving timber. They're clearing the way. Hard labor with heavy stone. And then when you consider the tasks, if we want to do a building project today, we have all these fancy tools. We have power tools and we have thing, we have, uh, things, that, little gizmos and all kinds that lift heavy objects. I was helping, helping Greg move some, some heavy, heavy stuff. He's got this little gizmo. It looks like a table. You, you can put something on the table that weighs Four, five, six, seven hundred pounds. You can put an engine on this little table. And then you just pump the little handle and the whole table comes up and you just slide it off onto something else wherever you want it to go. It's a breeze. They didn't have that. They didn't have cranes like we have. They didn't have back, back hose and bulldozers and all these other things. Jobs that would take us, if we had the right equipment, minutes, took them weeks. Moving the stone. And everything was done with hammer and chisel. No power tools. My kids got me a battery operated Drill. It's got a fly. It's got a, it's got a headlight on it. And I, I don't have to run a big extension cord. It only weighs about half as much and I can go up there and I can install something. Zip, 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 zip. I can go in the backyard. Zip, zip. I don't have to run an extension cord. Zip, zip. It's all done. I love it. In the old days, it was, <laughs> you're trying to, trying to turn this stupid screwdriver in your hand and, uh, and then you drop the bit out of the end of it and it falls in the dirt. So I think, now what am I going to find that? I got to get another one or get a magnet and go across the ground and try to find it. Everything here is hand tools. The stone cutters, the masons, those who are, who are putting the stones together, having to chisel them so they match exactly. The different craftsmen, the, the wood cutters, understand that they are not going to the lumber store. They are not running up to Lowe's or McClendon's and buying exactly what they need and just cutting the length. They are cutting down trees and then cutting them into boards and beams to use for the the construction project. There are metal workers. Metal workers, we are talking about blacksmiths who take a chunk of malformed metal and, and heat it up and hammer it into the various shapes or cast it into that. You can't go and buy this stuff. Everything is made for the job. There's the construction of the gates that involve all these things. The removal of the rubble, the debris that is there. Remember, the city had been destroyed uh, over 100 years before by, by Nebuchadnezzar. All that debris is still there. They burned the fire, they burned the limestone, and it crumbled. 
Think of a broken, a concrete is basically limestone. Think of a broken, crumbled concrete by the, the hundreds of tons that all has to be hauled off without the benefit of any mechanical equipment. And uh, carrying it out in baskets or in buckets. And they have to transport the heavy materials. They have to move the cut stone. They have to move the lumber. Everything is done by, by hand. They have to feed the people that are there. Thousands of people probably that are working on this project. They have to feed them all. And then later, uh, as we get further into the project, we're going to look at this in another chapter or two, they have to have defenders. They have to have armed people that are there as well. So all this is going on, and this is all starting with one man's vision of what needs to be done. And the people said, let us arise and build. But he's got, okay, you guys do this, and we're going to do this. And he's got it all coordinated, and he's got he's going to assign each of these to their respective jobs. They were not discouraged by the failure of others. Look at verse 5. And next to, next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles put not their necks to the work of their Lord. The people came from the city, and they were willing to work, but their, their leader, the leadership there in town said, well, we're not going to participate in this. You guys go if you want to, but we're not going to participate in this. Uh, they didn't want to dirty their hands. Maybe it was too demeaning to work side by side with the people they ruled over. They wouldn't work under or with others. And they didn't catch or perhaps wouldn't catch the, the vision of the project. Their focus is on themselves rather than God. But here's a fascinating thing. Look at verse 27. And after them, the Tekoites repaired another piece over against the great tower that lieth out even unto the wall of Ophel. The Tekoites repaired two sections. They were not hindered by their leaders. This was in spite of their leaders. They would not be held back by the failure of others. So often we make excuse, well, if they're not going to help, then I'm not going to be able to do it. We need to, to do what we're supposed to do, whether anybody else does it or not. Our labor is not dependent on others. There is always, there is always, I look at my house, I go at my house, I just, there's always something to do. And in our service for God, there is always, folks, there is always something to do. And it doesn't necessarily have to be an organized thing here. On your own, there is always something that you can do, even if you must work on your own. A lot of people fail. I'm reading a history of missions, and it deals with uh, a bunch of individuals. It isn't just dealing with great movements, but it's dealing with uh, it's many biographies all hooked together in chronological order and coordinated. Many will fail. A lot of folks failed at the beginning. They got all excited about this. They went, they started their training, and pretty soon they might be bickering with coworkers and so on. Somebody goes home, or somebody gets sick and dies, or something happens to somebody and they get fed up with it and they go away. Many will fail at the beginning. Some will fail along the way. Some even, this is why in the United States the policy is you don't put anybody on a postage stamp until they're dead. Because some folks don't finish well. There are people that, that do great and wonderful things, and then they crash and burn at the end. And some folks do that. Our Lord never fails. And we need to be faithful whether other people are willing to join with us or not. Our Lord said, in, it's, it says in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And in the Great Commission there in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20, it says, I am with you always. He is all-wise, all-powerful, and always present. So even if we think we're alone, we really aren't. If I'm willing to, to walk with God, if I am going to be empowered by God, you live a yielded life, I, I am indwelt and empowered and enabled by God. And I can do great, whatever God wants me to do if I am indeed empowered by Him and in submission to Him. 
Jonathan Edwards in his resolutions, and he had a whole bunch of them that he wrote when he was a young man. Just a, a very driven fellow who had a heart for the things of God. And he said, resolved that all men should live for the glory of God. Well, that's a great resolution. Yes, that's what ought to be, that all men should live for the glory of God. But he said this, resolved second, that whether others do or not, I will. My devotion, my willingness to, to live for the glory of God is not dependent on other people. And yet so often it is if we, do, we are unwilling to do something alone. We talked about the different people working together. We have the, the priests, we have the apothecaries, the, the, the perfumers, we have the, the, the goldsmiths, we have the, the blacksmiths, we have the carpenters, we have all these different people working together, coordinated together with this job. Now, I have a hammer. This is a very nice thing to have, especially in the days before power tools. These days you just have a hammer that you pull the button and it shoots a nail into something. But this is a very handy thing. It, I gotta be careful here. It makes a lot of noise. It builds things. I can break things with this. I can drive nails. I can, I can pull nails out. I can hurt my thumb. <laughs> I can do lots of things with this. And uh, when we think of tools, if we were to, if I were to say, okay, just name some tools. Hammer is usually one of the first things you think of. It's big. It's powerful. It's imposing. A hammer fits well in the hand. Hammer. Okay. Thor has one of these. That's, he doesn't carry a screwdriver. Do you notice that? Needle nose pliers. I'm a big fan of needle nose pliers. These can cut wire. They can twist wire. In a pinch, if you'll pardon the pun, they can remove a sliver. They're just big tweezers, you know. I'll tell you what. When you need these, nothing else will work. You gotta ha How many of you have one of these in a drawer someplace at your house? Everybody! Because you've got it, and if you don't, you need to get a pair. These are fantastic, but they don't do what this does. All right, very, very, very hard to drive a nail with needle nose pliers. Very hard to pull out a nail with needle nose pliers. You can do it if it's not in there too far. Very, very difficult. You might break your needle nose pliers doing it. This is a great tool to have. It's got its jobs. This is a fantastic tool. It doesn't get as much press as this one. But this is a great, great, I would rather in my kitchen drawer have this than this. That's just me, but I'd rather have this. This does something different than this. This can do lots of things. This can do a number of things. Screwdriver. I got a whole drawer full of these. We have a tendency, don't we, we, we accumulate these things. They just sort of magically appear. This does one, maybe two things well. It's designed for one, can do another. Good for opening a can of paint. But it's designed to drive a screw. And it generally does that fairly well. But it only does the one job. It doesn't do what this does. And it doesn't do what this does. All three of these things do different jobs. Now, if I... If I have gone to Ikea, depending on what I got, I'm going to need all three of these. But the point is that all three of these do different things. And depending on the job, I've got to have all three because they're not interchangeable. All right. Hammer, needle nose pliers, screwdriver. All necessary, all things that we need. And, uh, and yet they're necessary. And yet people are the same way. We got some people that are hammers. 
Everybody notices the hammer. Everybody admires the hammer. The hammer is limited, but most people aren't willing to recognize that the hammer is limited. What we need is that inconspicuous but very versatile pair of needle-nose pliers. And yet most of us, frankly, most of us are this. We can only do one, maybe two things. We can do them well, but, you know, without this, you're going to eventually run to, into a, a stop with the other two because you can only do so much with the other two before you're going to need one of these. The same thing's true as far as the work of God is concerned. All these different people are going to be needed. They each have different talents. They have, each have different skills. And they are necessary for the, for the coordination, for the working of the whole. And so often we, we emphasize the one without dealing with the, the other. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Starting at verse 4. He says, now there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are diversities of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every. That word could better be translated each. Everybody in this room who knows the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, God has given you a spiritual gift of some sort. Most of you probably have a good idea of what they are, what, what it is. I drove me crazy almost 30 years ago. Somebody was all excited about, oh, I got this little test that you take. It'll tell you what your spiritual gift is. And they were very much in earnest. I thought, you're nuts. But, but it, it, it's like a psychology profile. Don't do that. Don't go there. Just don't go there. Well, then how do I find out what my spiritual gift is? Um, if you yield yourself to the Lord, you will find out eventually, and usually in pretty short order, what your gift is. Because you will end up landing there. God will direct you, and God will sometimes make some things clear that you don't belong here and you don't belong here. But, boy, you sure can do this. And sometimes the thing that you can do is not what you think. Sometimes you end up having a great talent for something that you never thought you would have. And God is the one who has equipped you for that. The church works together as people are devoted, yielded to the Lord, and using their gifts, their talents for the whole. It works together, pardon me, our introductory illustration, like an ant colony. It all works together. Each doing their, their task, fulfilling their responsibility, using their talent in the church to bring about the function of the whole. Paul talks about that regarding the body there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It all works together. And God gives to each to profit therewith. For to one, it says in verse 8, is given by the the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the, the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gift of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles. By the way, if you've been here for any length of time and you know our view on on the uh, the miraculous supernatural type gifts, to another discerning of spirits and so forth. you got all these different things. But to each, everybody has at least one of these. And the idea here also is that nobody, there is no gift that everybody has. They're given out individually as God sovereignly chooses because he knows what is needed and how it's all going to come together. One of the things that's fascinating about the the history of this church is when we have had somebody leave and they, oh man, who's going to fill those shoes? You know, we have somebody walk in the door and somebody walk out the door almost exactly at the same time. Typically, we got about a two-week overlap or a two-week gap. God, God raises up because God knows exactly what is needful to take care of what is necessary. God raised up the, the people there in Nehemiah to fulfill what was necessary to get an incredible job done because the job was to rebuild the city walls. Now, look at this. You've got this, this hill covered with rubble. You have no equipment, but you've got a bunch of people. 
They have to rebuild the city walls that will be at least eight feet thick. They need to be high enough to provide adequate protection that they can't be easily climbed or scaled. Well, how long is this thing going to be? Between one and a half and two and a half miles. Wow. I know how long it took me to build a fence. And these people are using the materials at hand, having to create what they don't have at hand, need to make between a mile and a half and two and a half miles of wall that is as thick as from me to that wall and at least as high as this ceiling. How many people have I got? At most, 20, 30,000 people. And what have they got? They've got their hands. And they've got some tools that they can tuck into their belt, and that's it. They've got to build the gates. There's ten mentioned. It's possible there might be even two more. Heavy timber, iron, bronze, hinges, doorposts. All these things have got to come together. And we're going to see that God did an amazing thing in an, in, an, in an incredibly short period of time. Because everything comes together. All these things must work together. Now the opposition, we looked at a little bit of this uh, last week, we'll see more. The opposition will try to stop us. They've already demonstrated hostility there in chapter 2, in verse 10 and uh, 19 and 20. There is, by the way, remember, no restraint for those opposed to the work of God. They are unwitting so often. Minions of the devil. And the devil ha- Remember, the devil has no ethics. Okay? And his kids really don't have ethics either. Keep that in mind. The work must happen quickly. The need is great. Speed will limit the opportunities for opposition. And frankly, uh, practically speaking, you've got all these people who have left their, their towns and they've got to come and build this. If you, if you wait much too much longer, it's going to affect their economy. And also, they're dealing with agriculture. Okay, crops need to be planted, fields need to be plowed, and crops need to be harvested. Can't be away too long. Got to deal with these things. So this has to be done very quickly. We're not looking at at months and months and months and months. It's got to be done quickly. And they all must, all these pieces, next to, next to, next to, all these things need to fit together. Fragmentation and division results in very little progress. All the pieces have to come together. A united force makes a great Strength. I'll tell you a story. I, when I was in high school, I was a senior, we had something called field day in my high school. And I know it'd be hard to believe, but I was on the official tug-of-war team. And uh, we, we actually practiced. We had a great big tow rope, big nylon tow rope like this. And there were, there were ten of us. And we, we practiced. We, we pulled cars. We pulled trucks. We took, there was a concrete post this big around filled with concrete that was sunk into the ground and we thought, well, let's just pull out. We, we pulled it out of the ground. We pulled a stop sign over flat and somebody ran and went and we we're going to tell the, the principal's office. So we got over on the other side and pulled it back up. <laughs> ten of us. Now, none of us individually would have been able to do any of those things. But for ten of us, man, it was a piece of cake to do that stuff. You pulled, yes, we pulled that right out of the ground, giant ball of concrete on the end of it. That We got in trouble for that one. Dig a hole and just pull it back in, you know. But ten of us could do things that one of us couldn't do. And we see that all the time. You know, today's Mother's Day. And yet I thought, perfect opportunity to preach this particular message because of what took place this morning. 
you, know, you, you look around and you say, well, it looks like, like, it, like it always does on Sunday morning. Yes, I understand that. But an hour and five minutes ago, this had rows of tables and we were all stuffing ourselves. And there was a beautiful buffet. There's still a little bit of that beautiful buffet out there. But all this was set up and then broken down and set back up again in, in like four or five minutes. Because there was a lot of people doing the job. Voice of experience, one person doing what was done in five here. Somebody been, would have been here for probably an hour or more. But many hands make light work. And different gifts and different talents working together bring about some great results. God has given his people a task to do. We looked at this with the Great Commission. We can go through the scripture and find all kinds of things that we ought to be doing. What part do you have to, to play in that? God has a place for you. Are you willing to, to do what God has called you to do? And it isn't dependent on somebody else. It's dependent on you submitting yourself to God so that God has a willing tool to accomplish his purpose using your hands. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you did there in Nehemiah chapter 3 as we look in the next couple of chapters, what was amazingly accomplished. And yet the people had a will to work. They caught the vision. They were willing and they worked. And Father, great and amazing things can be done if people are but willing. And Father, I pray that we might be. Touch our hearts, that we would yield our hearts, our time, our purpose, our talents. For your glory, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Baptist Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to know more about faith in Jesus Christ or more about our ministry, please visit www.gracebaptistpuallop.org. Until next time, may you walk worthy of the Lord.